Friends, can I welcome you uh, to uh, this uh, lecture in the Mansfield series and uh, uh, introduce you to our speaker. Um, my name is Helena Kennedy and uh, as most of you know, I'm the principal here at Mansfield College. And we have established a tradition, which is on a Friday night before our formal dinner, that we have um, exciting speakers come and address us. And uh, we have the great privilege of having with us uh, tonight um, Joe Klein. Uh, Joe Klein has been our visiting fellow this term, and he and his wife Victoria have greatly enriched our lives here at the college. Um, they have been uh, fun colleagues to have. Um, they have uh, participated in all aspects of, uh, of college life, including Victoria contributing helpfully to um, some of the um, rethinking um, and redesign of our um, living spaces um, to make them more um, uh, pleasurable. And uh, Joe has taken part in a number of debates. He spoke first on the special relationship, and we found that the special relationship was indeed special, but it expanded well beyond America and, uh, and Britain, and that there were many kinds of special relationship. Um, he then came and took part in a debate about uh, whether one nation politics was uh, uh, in fact more than a slogan. And we saw it from a, the perspective of someone in the United States where there are many different uh, uh, peoples and the creation of one nation is particularly challenging. And uh, tonight he is going to address a very different issue. He's talking about citizenship and, uh, and his take on that in light of his more recent experiences. Um, as you all will know, Joe Klein is famed for the fact that he is one of America's great journalists. He is a political commentator and analyst, and he writes um, and is the main political uh, writer in for Time magazine. But he is also uh, an author of many, many books, um, but the one that uh, particularly remains in people's memories is Primary Colours, which of course became that famous film um, which we all thought was about Bill Clinton, but who knows? <laughs> anyway, um, but it is my great pleasure to introduce you to you tonight our visiting fellow, my friend, Joe Klein. Thank you, Helena. It has been... <clears throat> just a, a, a wonderful experience for Victoria and me, and I'd like to thank all of you. Uh, there are so many, so many of you here tonight who are familiar to us now, um, who we've enjoyed meeting and talking with and, and uh, getting drunk with and all the other things that we do here at Oxford. Um, and, and, and so um, I thought that perhaps as a treat, I would start tonight by telling you a Clinton story. Um, people always ask me, uh, what did Clinton think of primary colors? And um, he never actually said anything directly to me about it. Uh, but he did ask. <laughs> it came at the end of his, uh, his time in office, and I was doing a big piece for the New Yorker magazine where I was working at the time. Uh, this was 2000, and uh, I, was, I was doing a piece about what had actually been accomplished, uh, aside from all the scandals, most of which were nonsense in the first place. 
and Clinton and I had known each other for about 15 years at that point. We had, you know, become friendly early on because we were both policy wonks. And after my first session with the president, uh, which was two hours devoted to health care and welfare, welfare reform, um, we sat down and had a Diet Coke. The first lady came in. Diet Coke is about as good as it gets with the Clintons. They are not drinkers. And of course, we know he didn't inhale. Um, <clears throat> and we were feeling great after this conversation. I mean, the endorphins were running. And uh, Clinton leans back and he asked me, so, so why'd you write that book anyway? And, uh, and I said, well, Mr. President, I always saw it, and by the way, this is the absolute truth, I always saw it as a tribute to larger-than-life politicians. At which point the First Lady snorted derisively, and I said, First Lady, um, would you rather have a larger-than-life president or a smaller-than-life president? And at which point she was thinking about the two options on the table for the year 2000, Al Gore, whom she despised, and George W. Bush, whom she disdained. And so she shrugged and she said, um, well, yeah, uh, okay. And I said, you realize that a larger-than-life president has larger-than-life strengths, but also larger-than-life weaknesses. And she looked at me, and then she looked at her husband, and she began to laugh, and she said, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I had to give it, you know, I had, I, I had to give it to her because um, she was right. I wasn't looking forward to this election very much either, uh, the 2000 election. It was one of the most boring, substance-free elections I had covered. It was my seventh, God help me. Um, there are no 12-step programs for political junkies. Uh, but I determined that uh, I'd had enough. My career at that point had spanned 30 years. And during that time, I had watched public life in the United States um, diminish some. Uh, I could give you a brief history. Uh, I have a friend who was one of Robert Kennedy's key advisors, and uh, he once said to me, television has ruined everything it touched. And he was talking about professional basketball. But it was also true. He, he also traced it and could trace it to um, politics. My coming of age, um, in terms of in terms of political interest, happened in 1960, as so many of my fellow baby boomers did. And the crucial event of that campaign, John Kennedy against Richard Nixon, were the first televised debates, which Kennedy won if you were watching on television. Those who listened to the debate on radio thought that Nixon had won because they didn't see his five o'clock shadow and his sweaty upper lip. The lesson that politicians took from this was, we need acting coaches. And so they began to hire consultants. Um, Nixon hired a consultant, a consultant who became famous in later life. His name, he was a young man from Ohio whose name was Roger Ailes, who became the president of the Fox News Network, which has so, done so much to distort reality in the United States for the last 20 years. Uh, but Ailes gave Nixon some really good advice. 
he would have these town meetings and he would lace the, lace the meetings with angry questioners because he thought that Nixon could handle angry questions and it, would, and, and it would give him credibility as something more than this cardboard character who uh, had a five o'clock shadow and sweated from his upper lip. Uh, that worked well. And as a, a book was written uh, in 19, after the 1968 campaign called The Selling of the President uh, by a writer named Joe McGinnis. And after that, every president was sold. And in fact, the consultants said, began to say to their clients, look, if, um, if we're really going to do an effective job of this, we need to do some polling to find out what people are interested in. And then in its next iteration, they said, we, we need to do some, some market testing, some focus groups to see what combinations of words work best. Uh, oh, and by the way, in order to do this, we're going to have to start raising a lot more money. And so fundraising became integral to the presidential process in a way that it had never been before. Huge, vast amounts of money had to be raised. Um, and so by 1976, the most important uh, person, aside from the candidate, in Jimmy Carter's campaign, and given Carter's personality, uh, Pat Cadell, his pollster, may have been more important than he was, uh, was you know a 28-year-old pollster who, after the election, sent Jimmy Carter a, mem a memo in which he said, you're, if you want to succeed in the presidency, you're going to have to run it as if it were a permanent campaign. And from that day to this, American presidents have run their presidencies as campaigns. And this has been to the detriment of our democracy, greatly. Because political consultants see the world in, through the opposite end of the telescope than a president should. For political consultants, the most important success to have is today. Winning the day, they call it. Now it's gotten so bad that they talk about winning the news cycle. And the news cycles tumble along on top of each other in crazy fashion, several a day. Um, so everything is geared to the immediate response of the American people. Presidents have become followers, not leaders. The true, the best way, the most important way for a president to look at, at the world is the exact opposite. He, or pretty soon she, um, should be looking at the challenges we're going to be facing 5, 10, 20 years out. Uh, Barack Obama has tried to do that to a certain extent and every time he does he gets hammered uh, you know he, he, uh, when he talks about the need for uh, universal health insurance uh, he is hammered by an opposition that blatantly distorts 
program that he's, uh, he's, he's, uh, he's proposed and is now enacting. Uh, global warming has become a fiction on the American right. A very dangerous situation indeed. So, <clears throat> confronted with a pretty depressing campaign in, uh, in 2000, I decided to retire. In fact, it was an unutterably boring campaign until it ended when it became uh, tawdry and frightening, actually. So, I retired in 2000. No more presidential politics for me. I was going to go home and write novels, which apparently I could do pretty well. Um, and so I retired for eight months and ten days. On the eleventh uh, day of the ninth month of 2001, nine of my neighbors in the small town that uh, my wife and I lived in, just north of New York City, nine of our neighbors didn't come home. And all of a sudden, everything changed. All of a sudden, we became citizens again. All of a sudden, the, so the forces of social capital in the town, um, which is a euphemism for the women, uh, got together and they established menus, feeding schedules for the nine widows and their families. All of a sudden, we heard that they needed shovels and gloves down at uh, Ground Zero. And I don't know what the British equivalent is, but Victoria and friends of ours went to Home Depot and they bought out every last shovel and glove in that monster store and brought it to the police station in Pelham. And then we had um, memorial services for those who had died. And at one of them, the wife of an investment banker, her name is Lisa Hurd, Victoria just recently saw her, I haven't seen her since, came up to me, she was holding a two-month-old baby in her arms and she said, I've got this one and I've got a two-year-old. When they get old enough to ask where, why their father died, uh, Joe, could you tell them? You're in the business. Well, I didn't need that incentive. I was already, you know, I had already received a phone call from my editor at the New Yorker, David Remnick, uh, on September 12th, and he had said, what country do you want to go to? And I said, Iran. But that's not the right question. He said, what is the right question? I said, the right question is, how is the American military, which was built to fight tank battles on the plains of Europe, and use that in that same sort of strategy in the Gulf War, how is it going to fight a stateless, ephemeral, ephemeral opponent like Al-Qaeda. He said, okay, do that and then go to Iran. And uh, in some ways he set my agenda for the, uh, from that day until this. Uh, I realized then that I had to learn more about the region. I'd been traveling to the region, especially to Israel, for about 25 years. I had to learn more about Islam. I had to learn more about US intelligence and how it worked. And I had to learn more about the United States military. Uh, at the time, I must say, I thought that our response to 
that the same response would be a special operations response. You go to Afghanistan, you find the bad guys, and you take care of them. Um, and if you have to go across the border to Pakistan to get Osama bin Laden, then you take care of him. But, much to my amazement, at the time we had a president who didn't know the difference between a Sunni and a Shiite, and who had key advisors, Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld, who believed that the war had this incredibly anachronistic belief that we were still fighting against other states rather than a stateless enemy. And um, by 2003, when it, it, by late 2002, when it became apparent that we were, as one um, Israeli source of mine, uh, intelligence source of mine, said, asked me, you're not actually thinking of occupying Iraq, are you? Um, when it became apparent to me that we were, and having read a little bit of history, I knew that Iraq may or may not be a country, that it was a kind of Churchillian fantasy. Uh, I decided that I needed a different podium. At the New Yorker, we're so lofty that we're not allowed to have arms or elbows. And uh, I wanted to haul off on the president, so I moved to Time Magazine as their political columnist in 2003. And I began to find that I had some very interesting sources, people who were willing to talk to me of a sort that I never expected. And these were members of the US uniformed military who were disgusted with Donald Rumsfeld, disgusted with the fact that we would go to war, into an unnecessary war, almost every last one of the, the, the generals I spoke to believed. And we would do so without a complete war plan, without the phase four of the war plan, which is what you do when you win. How do you reestablish normality? Uh, and so I began to get some really interesting uh, information, especially with regard to uh, the aforementioned Donald Rumsfeld, who um, lives, will live in history as the single worst Secretary of Defense in American history. Um, and um, at one point, a four-star general, weeping, said to me, if, you, if, if Rumsfeld ever gives you an interview, he won't because he knows who you are, but if he ever did, I would ask him two questions. The first is, what should our forced posture be toward China? 10 years from now. And the second is, based on after action reports from the last month in Iraq, what tactical changes uh, and, and uh, logistical changes do we need to make right now? He said, I'll bet you anything China lights up his eyes because he doesn't care about this war. Two or three years into it, um, I became close to a group of people who really didn't like Rumsfeld in the army, and they were people who believed in counterinsurgency warfare. Uh, counterinsurgency was based on, um, the, the, the basic theory is that you 
you um, watch the people, you take care of the people, you protect the people, and they tell you where the bad guys are. Uh, and then you go after the bad guys rather than chasing hither and yon after the, after the bad guys um, and playing what was known at that time in the American press as whack-a-mole, one of those carnival games where you're constantly banging and heads and other heads are popping up in other places. So I wrote a column about this and um, said it's the, you know, my feeling about Iraq at that point was we had made a total mess going in. We had a moral responsibility to calm things down on the way so that the Iraqis could make their own determinations about how things would go forward. Um, so I wrote this column about counterinsurgency in the spring of 2006, and the next day I got a phone call from a fellow named General David Petraeus, who had been cast into the outer darkness by Rumsfeld, uh, at least Rumsfeld thought. He had been sent to the Army's think tank at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, where he was writing uh, a new manual on how to do counterinsurgency. Well, my experience with high-ranking military at that point was, shall we say, prohibitively limited. Um, but I, he called me up and he said, you're on the right track, but you don't know anything. Would you be willing to come out here and study with us? I said, absolutely. So I went out to Fort Leavenworth. First, though, uh, he sent me a list of 30 scholarly articles in military journals about counterinsurgency, which I read in the manner of a 1960s Ivy League liberal arts um, graduate, which is to say, I picked and chose, and that looks interesting. I'll read a little bit, and that's fine. Um, and when I got out there, I found myself surrounded by Petraeus and his people, many of whom were Rhodes Scholars, others of whom were number one and number two in their class at West Point. They were the most inter intellectually rigorous people I had, I had met in 30 years as a journalist at that point. And uh, how intellectually rigorous? We would have dinner, and I would be able to ask anything. Uh, and they would answer, frankly. But if I asked a question that was in the reading, I would get this. Klein, didn't you read Corelli's piece in Military Review about full-spectrum warfare? It was on the list, followed by um, a dear friend of mine, Lieutenant Colonel John Noggle, who said, looking at my loafers, he said to me, Klein, Clearly, you're too lazy even to tie your shoes in the morning. <laughs> uh, well, I fell in love with these people. Uh, and six months later, when Petraeus got the call to take over in Iraq, uh, I had to go. I broke a uh, written vow to my wife, whose uh, response was, well, if you do get hurt over there, I will say I told you so. And at the age of 60, I went out to the war. And I was very much impressed by what I saw. And I kept on going. I went to Afghanistan after going to Iraq. I went to Afghanistan four times in two years. I embedded with our troops out on the front lines. I kept on going back to this one town in, in uh, Kandahar province, you know, homegrown home ground of the Tal 
of, uh, of the Taliban. Uh, this town, Sanjuri, was two towns over from Mullah Omar's hometown where the Taliban had been founded. It was, when I first went there, 80% Taliban controlled. And uh, at that point, at the age of 63, and wildly out of shape, I would go out and walk patrol with the American troops. And what I found was surprising, because I hadn't been reading about this in the papers. But what I found was there was an American company stationed in the town, led by a 30-year-old captain named Jeremiah Ellis. And he had money for public works. And what he would do uh, would be to send out his troops with interpreters and ask the people in the town, what do you want us to do for you? What do you need? Um, this was quite likely the first time in human history that anybody had asked these Afghan villagers that question. Um, because clearly, the local shura and the local um, warlord, a lugubrious thug named Haji Lala, didn't want what the people wanted. The people wanted Ellis and his troops to reopen the local schools so that their children, their boys, and their girls could go to school. The school had been built by the Canadians. It was a gorgeous place, but it had been um, uh, it had been shut down and booby-trapped by the Taliban. And it was right on the border between areas completely controlled by the Taliban and areas patrolled by the military. Um, so Captain Ellis had to take this plan to, uh, to the local shura. And, um, and, that, and they said, no. What we'd really like you to do is spend some money to build an irrigation ditch out to this area 10, 15 miles west of town, an area that just happened to be owned by Haji Lala. Uh, and uh, so that we could irrigate those lands. And of course, it was, they were going to be irrigated for poppies. And of course, the usual deal obtained. 50% of the, uh, the profits would go to the Karzai government. 50% of the profits would go to the Taliban. And, um, and Haji Lala would take whatever he could skim off the top of that. So Captain Ellis decided to go back to the school plan. And he had to deal with six different bureaucracies, three on our side, three on the other side. He had to get a bomb disposal unit into town. He had to do a bunch of different things. And one day, as I was watching him deal with one of the neighbors near the school, who had, he was a landowner who had a really nice compound, and Ellis wanted to put two of his troops there the night before he was going to move in the bomb disposal unit, just to make sure that the Taliban weren't coming in overnight to occupy the place. And I walked into the, the compound with him, and Ellis took off his helmet and put his rifle down and sat down on the floor, um, knees crossed, and just began talking casually about the crops and the weather and building a rapport with this person, smiling some, but not all that 
much, being serious, respectful. The body language was perfect. And I said to my, and, and, and I had this epiphany. And the epiphany was, if Jeremiah Ellis can do all of this here, under fire, he can probably go back to Iowa, which is where he was from, and run for governor. I realized that these American troops, who had been retrained by then by Petraeus, were going to be coming home with a different set of skills than any American troops in history, skills similar to the ones that your British troops had during the colonial era. Um, although perhaps a little less imperial. And I began to think that these skills would translate into a generation of young troops who would become community and public leaders. Just about that same time, a study was published which showed that 90%, 90% of the returning troops expressed a desire to do work in their communities or some other kind of public service, to continue their service, to continue their missions. Even if half of them were lying, that was an incredible number of people. And so I began to do some research, which led to the book that I have, thank you, Helena, finished here, I think. And I began to look at look for some of this, these new generation of veterans. And I found them and I decided to write about two of them. Let me tell you about them. Um, the first, the name is Eric Brightens. He's a Rhodes Scholar. He did his DPhil um, at Lady Margaret Hall. He, uh, he was one of those kids who saved the world one semester break at a time. He went from refugee camp to refugee camp. And um, he worked for Mother Teresa in India. He went, to, uh, he went to Bosnia. He went to Chiapas, Mexico. But the real eye-opener for him was when he went to Rwanda and he saw children who had been badly mangled their arms chopped off, their legs chopped off, their ears chopped off, their noses chopped off during the genocide. And his reaction was pure, sheer humanitarian anger. And he decided that the innocent of the world needed heavily armed moral protection. And so he decided to become a Navy SEAL. Uh, as we now know, the Navy SEALs are, have become creatures of mythology. <coughs> Uh, he was the only Navy SEAL in history to have also worked for Mother Teresa. He didn't fit with the SEALs too well. He got into several moral scrapes where he blew the whistle on people who were breaking rules and, uh, and was ostracized. He eventually did four tours, uh, the last one as an intelligence officer, since the SEALs didn't trust him to lead other SEALs. Uh, and he was blown up in Fallujah. 
in the spring of 2007. And then he came home, trying to figure out what he was going to do next. And he wanted it to be about public service. He wanted it to still be about those kids in the refugee camps. Uh, and he talked to people about, pu about public service in the States. Uh, and he also, in his usual kind of slacker, slouchy way, was, was selected as a White House fellow uh, and, uh, and became very much involved in the, uh, in the rescuing of New Orleans after uh, Hurricane Katrina. But in the months after he came back, uh, he decided that he should go to Bethesda Naval Hospital and see the troops there just to see how they were doing. And he went with a couple of friends, and he went, he, he went in uniform, in his SEAL uniform, and he went to the amputee ward, where some of the most grievously injured people were. And his assistant, they remembered it, just a, a sea of white, she was just shocked because you know, the gowns were white, the blankets were white, the drapes were white, the bandages were white, and she couldn't handle the degree of despair and injury that she saw. But he knew how to talk to them, and so he asked them, he asked them uh, one question, what do you want to do now? And every last one of them, and I have had the exact same experience at Walter Reed Army Hospital, every last one of them answered the same way. They said, I want to go back to my unit. I want to serve. The next question obviously was, well, um, what if you can't go back? Or what do you want to do after that? And they said, I want to go home and maybe become a cop or a firefighter or a school teacher or help out in some way, a coach. And uh, he walked out of there and he, had his, and he had a mission. What he proceeded to do was to raise funds, um, lots of funds eventually, after he perfected the program, uh, to give six-month public service fellowships to wounded veterans. Uh, the program was called The Mission Continues. Almost a thousand of them are out there in the United States now, either alumni or still in the program, most of them still working in their communities. One of these characters, or people of good character, uh, was a fellow by the name of Jake Wood, who was a football player at the University of Wisconsin, also a very smart guy. And he, he came out of the university and decided that the ultimate act of citizenship was to serve his country. He had a, he had a multitude of injuries from, uh, from football, and the, the Marines and the Army didn't want him. And so he essentially had to beg his way into the Marines, found a recruiter who needed one more person to fill his quota. And uh, Jake became a Marine, uh, became a sergeant, led men in battle in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And then he came home. And when he came home, 
he was about to do what a lot of smart soldiers do and go, go to business school, get an MBA, when the earthquake in Haiti happened. And when he watched the devastation on TV, he said, I know that. I've worked in that kind of circumstance. And he began to call up his friends to see if they wanted to go down and help out in Haiti. Eventually, he, um, he found uh, four other Marines. And then, on the airplanes going down, they made announcements and asked if there were any doctors who were going to Haiti who wanted to have some protection. And so eight members of what became known as Team Rubicon landed in Santo Domingo two days after the earthquake, drove across the island of Hispaniola to Haiti, and, were, and went to uh, the Jesuit rectory there uh, for instructions. One of uh, uh, Jake's partners, William McNulty, had grown up as a Jesuit. Uh, their slogan is that they are men for others. Um, and, uh, and they made that connection. And they were there before anybody else got there. And within three days, they were running the emergency room at the largest hospital in Port-au-Prince. They ran it for two days before American troops could get there with, with proper combat surgeries. And then they started going out into the outer refugee camps, um, fixing broken bones, uh, cleaning wounds, bandaging wounds. And what Jake found during that week, and what the others found during that week, was that this was service as it ought to be. This was, this resurrected the feeling of team, the feeling that they were part of some, something larger and more important than themselves. Uh, and it happened without putting them in much danger, although there were ro ro roving mobs. Um, you know, they'd say, we're Marines, we can do mobs. Uh, and it gave them the incredible thrill of being able to serve and to help without putting their lives at risk or having to kill anybody. At the end of the, at the, end of the two weeks, uh, Will McNulty, the Jesuit, said to, um, said to Jake Wood, I think we have a model here. And indeed, they did. And it occurred to me, as I began to look into research, spend time with, go out on service projects with these kids, uh, that they belonged in a different society than me, from me. Uh, if you look at politics on a standard liberal conservative axis, they were all over the place. But if you looked at society in terms of a communitarian versus libertarian axis, they were stone communitarians. They were the last strongest communitarians in American society. And I realized that 
over the past 40 years that I'd been a journalist, over the past 50 years, over the past 65 years since the end of World War II, America had slid constantly away from the sense of community that we had in the past and toward a libertarian sense of aggrandizing the self. Um, I, I had actually named a character in Primary Colors after this, uh, this principle before I came to this epiphany. The character was Orlando Ozio, the governor of New York. Um, those of you who are Italian scholars will know that Ozio is, is Italian for indolence. And Machiavelli once said that Ozio is the greatest enemy of a republic, by which he meant, meant to express his concern about how do you hold a republic coherent when it's not at war. And as I watched these guys coming back, and women, in fact, there were a disproportionate number of women who were um, Mission Continues Fellows, about 23% versus 15% in the, in the military. I saw that they were coming back with a value system quite different from the one, ones that I was used to, a value system that I felt very uh, comfortable with, even though it was entirely contradictory. They came back with a basic liberal principle, which was you don't leave the wounded behind. You bring everybody along. But that was countered by a conservative principle, which is nobody gets anything for free. You earn what you get from society. You have a reciprocal responsibility as a citizen to give back. And I realized that a good part of the problem that we'd been having during my 45 years as a journalist was that we'd been trying to get away with having democracy without citizenship. Citizenship had just come to mean mere residency. It was interesting, a disproportionate number of the officers who I spoke to who saw actual combat in the war were classic scholars. Who would, be, who would join the military for the same reason that Jake Wood did, because they saw it as the ultimate act of citizenship, to protect their freedom. And um, Eric Ryden's favorite quote came from Thucydides, which was, any nation that draws too great a distinction between its scholars and its warriors will have its thinking done by cowards and its fighting done by fools. I think we can extrapolate. I think we can extrapolate because um, I hope that over thousands and thousands of years we're beginning to learn our lessons about, about the perils of testosterone poisoning. Um, and that in the future, wars will be fewer. They're certainly more likely to be um, virtual through cyber warfare and drones and, and, uh, and special operatives and intel. And that raises a question. 
a really basic question, which is, how are we going to create citizens in our societies if we don't have coming-of-age rituals? It's one of the reasons why many of the people who I've met uh, in the military, when I ask them about this, they say, well, obviously you need some kind of universal national service. Uh, and so the conclusion that I've come to is that government, the best way to reform government, and government in our country, I don't know about yours, I suspect it's pretty much the same, has lost tremendous amounts of credibility over the past 30 years and especially over the last 15. That one way to rebuild citizenship and rebuild a sense of community and rebuild faith in government is to make government something that each of us does for a short period of our life rather than paying other people to do full time unless they happen to be geniuses at it. This is, going, this is something that a lot of people in the states, according to the polls, agree with. But not many people want to act on because of the power of public employees, unions, although that can be, uh, that can be handled if you make these national service jobs the beginning of a career ladder. Uh, and also because it might cost something, although in the end I think it would cost less than, uh, than the pensions that we're now paying. Um, but it seems to me, and in closing, I, I want to turn back to my dear Helena, and that, and and the words that she says before every formal dinner, which is that anything worth having is worth sharing with others. That's the fundamental principle of community. It's the fundamental principle of citizenship. And what I've learned, perhaps the most important lesson I've ever learned, is that we need to get back there. Thank you very much.